going to ask you to go in your Bibles, please, to Peter's first letter. First Peter, please. We're going to go to chapter number four. First Peter, chapter number four. wanted to come to this text today, and we could have gone to others as well, but wanted to come to this text to help us to answer some questions, to put into maybe some perspective the events 15 years ago. Let me say before we get into the message that I don't have all the answers. And that's okay. No one does. No one can answer every question Related to what happened on 9-11. We're limited. God made us that way. One of the least studied or read or maybe even talked about books in our Bible is the book of Ecclesiastes. And yet it is one of the most practical books in your Bible. Because in the book of Ecclesiastes, you have the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, admitting to the world that he didn't have all the answers. Even with all his wisdom, even with all of his brilliance, even with all of his wealth, even with all the pleasure he sought in life, There were times that Solomon was confronted with the fact that God is bigger than him. And that's the way God made it. When we come to the kinds of questions surrounding the events of 15 years ago, they're the same kinds of questions that many of us have related to other events in our lives. And so as we ask some of the questions about 9-11, you might also be asking or will at some point ask these same kinds of questions about things that happen in your life. Now let me ask you a couple of questions. Do any of you know someone who perished on 9-11-01? Anybody in this room? Let me tell you why I asked that question. Because we can separate ourselves from what happened. Because, yes, it impacted us. Everybody in this room remembers what you were doing when you heard about the first plane or whatever plane you heard about for the first time. You remember. It was one of those kinds of shattering events 
And yet we can still step away from it a little bit because we were not directly impacted by it. But there will be things in our life that we can't separate ourselves from. Because we will be directly impacted. And so the same kinds of questions that many today are asking about 9-11, we will ask about things we go through. And so that's why we're doing what we're doing today. 1 Peter chapter 4 Let's start talking about verse number 12 after we pray. Father, guide us in our thinking and in our responses today. Help me to be faithful to your message, your text, and help us to be faithful in how we respond to it. And obedient, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter four twelve. Beloved, Peter is obviously writing to the church. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice. Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. Those two verses make up one sentence. And this sentence is going to be the basis for, a basis for how we try to answer some questions this morning. So here is the first question. Where was God on 9-11? Where was God on 9-11? What we're going to do today in answering some questions is basically what some of the psalmists do when they write their psalms. We're going to express what we think. And then hopefully we're going to come around to thinking the right way. Where was God on 9-11? The answer for some people is he had turned his back. The answer some people give would be, well, all God did was just set the world in motion and he's kind of just kind of standing back watching what's going on and he was as shocked by 9-11 as we were. The answer for some people is so confusing and disturbing that they want nothing to do with God now because they cannot answer the question, where was God on 9-11? And really, obviously, what they mean by that is, why didn't He intervene? Why didn't he do something? Where was God 
That question was asked by a television reporter, not about 9-11, but about a church shooting in Texas several years ago. The pastor was holding a news conference and one of the reporters, after some in his congregation were shot and killed, one of the reporters asked the question to the pastor, Pastor, where was God when the shooting was taking place? And that pastor, in wisdom and grace, gave this answer. The same place. God was the same place He was the day He watched His Son die. Where was God on 9-11? I'll tell you where He wasn't. He wasn't silent. What He wasn't doing, He wasn't silent. God was speaking to hearts. No doubt about it. God was not silent. God was not passive. God didn't just set creation in motion and stand back and watch it take place. God was not passive. He was working in hearts. He was working in individuals. He was close. He was gracious. He was giving mercy when to those who needed it. God was not absent. God was the same place on 9-11 as He was the day He watched His own son. Where was God? And I don't mean to be irreverent or to diminish the holiness and power of God in any way, but let me just say a few things. God was on every fire truck, in every police car. God was. (coughs) God was on every staircase. In both those buildings. God was in every sea on all those airplanes. God was in the home of those who planned the terrorist attack. God was in the home of everyone who had a loved one on those planes or in those buildings. God was there. So why, second question, why didn't God stop the terrorists? I want to I read a verse to you, and you might just want to write down the reference and go back and look at it later. Why didn't God stop the terrorists? Well, let me, let me answer that question this way. God does not rejoice when unbelievers die. Ezekiel 33.11 says, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God, God's heart was breaking that day as people stepped into eternal judgment. The rest of that verse goes on to say, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And then he pleads, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? 
God does not rejoice in the death of any unbeliever. He wants them to repent. So why didn't he stop the terrorists? You know, we could ask that question about a lot of things and we still wouldn't have all the answers. Why didn't God, why doesn't God stop all pain in the world? Why doesn't God stop all sorrow in the world? Why doesn't God stop all death in the world? I know it's hard for us sometimes to think outside of our finite humanity. But all I can say is this. Somehow in the wisdom and knowledge of God, he has a plan. Let me read a few verses from Psalm 46. Starting at verse number 8, Come behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he hath made in the earth. Now you can't stop there. You can't stop with the destruction because the, the text goes on and says he makes wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burns the chariot in the fire. And then he gives these words and this is where we need to come to with all the questions. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among, and the word in our King James is heathen. I'm going to use another word. I will be exalted among unbelievers. I will be exalted in the earth. No one can answer questions like, why? Didn't God stop? Or why doesn't God stop certain things from taking place? But we can, we can let God bring our thinking in, into conformity to the word, to the point to his word and to his grace and to his power, to the point that we literally can. And when the Bible says, be still, it's, it's, he's saying, calm down and Relax. You can can find rest in your soul. And the rest won't come from having your questions answered. The rest will come from knowing He's God. Where was God there? Why didn't God stop the terrorists? Only God knows and we can trust Him. He has a plan. So why do things like 9-11 happen? Why does tragedy take place? Why is there death? Why is there sorrow? Why, why, why? Go back in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse number 22. For we know that the whole creation 
groans, groaneth, and travaileth in pain unto now, until now. What's he talking about? We live in a world that is under a curse. We live in a world that is feeling, experiencing the effects of sin. When God warned Adam and Eve, the day you eat this fruit, you're going to die. The earth did too. Sin brought a curse on the earth. And one of the effects of the curse is death. And even Adam and Eve experience, and we don't know how long between the curse and the carrying out of the curse, we don't know how long between the curse and the murder, the tragic death of one of their sons took place, but they experienced horrible tragedy as a result of sin. And we can go through the Bible and we can see experience after experience, tragedy after tragedy, ramification of the curse after ramification of the curse. Sin brings death. Sin brings destruction. Some will say, Again, why didn't God stop? Why does God allow sin? Why did God create a devil? James does make something very clear to us. God does not tempt men to sin. God himself cannot be tempted with sin and he does not tempt man to to sin. Sin is a result, or excuse me, death is a result of sin. Destruction is a result of sin. And individuals and families and nations and, 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 and our world is still under the curse of sin. So what now? We've come 15 years later. What do we do now? Let me talk about a few things. The first would be, let God help us think like we should. Let God help us think like we should. Remember what I said at the beginning about the psalmist? Many of them, you can see and read about the struggles that they had, the questions that they had with and about God. Some were even so shaken 
and so confused that, that you read that they were ready to walk away. They were ready to give up. What this unfair thing we call the Christian life, it, it, how can unbelievers, how can the wicked prosper when, when God's children suffer? Why do we have to go? You, you, you can read their confusion and, and they had some of the same questions. One of those was Asaph. Asaph said, my feet well nigh slipped. He, 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 was, he was at the breaking point. But then he remembered to go back to the place of worship. He went back to the place where he could have his thinking brought in line with who God is. That's worship. He went to the place where his his rebellion and stubbornness were changed to humility and confession. And, And whereas at the beginning of his psalm, Psalm 73, he was talking about uh, a shaky foundation and his foot slipping. He finishes, he comes to the conclusion in that psalm that God was his rock. God was his rock. So in thinking the right way about tragedy and sorrow and pain and trial and hurt, we need to let God change our thinking to the point that He is our rock. He is our sure foundation. He can be trusted. We can rest. We can relax because we know He's God. You see, when God is not our foundation, confusion will take over. Questions will defeat us. So, first of all, let God help you with your thinking. Secondly, I want you to see this text in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. So let's turn there, please. Luke records a very interesting story for us in the ministry of Jesus. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. There were present at that season, this time of when our Lord was ministering, some that told him of the Galileans, now listen, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Okay, now what does that mean? Apparently, these Galileans, people from Galilee, Jesus would have ministered in that area. Some of the apostles were actually from that region. Apparently, they were worshiping. Now, we're not sure they were worshiping the right God, okay? And it may have even been that there was pressure for some of these people to be worshiping the emperor and they were 
serving or worshiping other gods. Nonetheless, without knowing all the story, we do know this. When they were doing their form of worship, Pilate had them put to death. Now these were Galileans. They were murdered by their government. So the reaction is, these people, some present, come and tell Jesus about this as if he didn't know it already. And Jesus answering said unto them, they want a reaction. They want Jesus to condemn. They want Jesus to say this was God's judgment. Jesus answering said unto them, suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the other Galileans? In other words, these people who are bringing this news to Jesus were thinking to themselves, those people must have been horrible. Those people must have been sinners beyond any, any help from God because they were put to death. Jesus says, suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all other Galileans because they suffered these things? Jesus then says, no. Listen, I tell you, no, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell. Now this is closer to home. This is part of the tabernacle structure, temple structure, excuse me. Near the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem, apparently one of those fortress towers fell and 18 people were crushed. Or those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Here's Jesus' response to these kinds of tragic circumstances. Self-examination. Not pointing fingers. Not passing judgment. Self-examination. Why? Because you could have been in those towers too. You could have been on one of those airplanes too. And just because those people, those some 3,000 were that day, did not make them worse than anybody who wasn't. We're all sinners. And we all need to repent. So what now? Think the right way. Self-examination. Let me tell you one other thing. What now? Evangelism. Evangelism. You and I need to be ready to share the gospel all the time. Not just after a tragedy, but before. You and I need to be talking about Jesus now. Now. We don't know when the next terrorist attack will take place. We don't know when the next tragic plane crash is going to happen. We don't know when the next sorrow or pain or death will come. 
to family or friends, which is why we need to be talking about Jesus now. And we also need to be ready to share the gospel with those who are going through tragedy and heartache and sorrow. And be ready to give answers. <coughs> answers that don't necessarily directly address questions, but are answers that are sufficient for the soul. Go back now to 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's look at some of the answers Peter gives. He, first of all, uses the term beloved. Now, I think that's part of the answer. Because that expresses God's sentiment towards us as well. That tells us God loves us. Even when it doesn't seem like it. Even when we don't feel like it. God loves us. Think it not strange. Another way of saying that is, don't think it's unusual when you go through trials. Trials for the believer should be expected and they should not surprise us. Did you hear me? Trials for a believer should be expected and should not surprise us. Notice the term he uses here. He uses the term which or when you are tried. Not if. When. It's a surety. <clears throat> In essence, you and I as believers are either in a trial or coming up on a trial or having just gone through one. We, we've either just gone through one, we're in one, or one's coming. That's just the way life works for the child of God. You say, I thought God wanted to give us peace and God wants us to be happy. You know what? Even in the trials... He can give you peace and He can give you joy and He can help you to be happy. So think it not strange. Don't think it unusual when the trials come. And He uses the word fiery. Why? Because they're painful. They're painful. They hurt. They leave scars. And sometimes... The worst scars are the ones that people can't see. Don't think it's strange as, or unusual as though something unusual happened to you. 
but rejoice. Now that's counterculture, isn't it? That takes grace, doesn't it? Rejoice. And why can we rejoice? Not because we're in pain, but we are suffering with Christ. We are partaking of His suffering. Our suffering produces Christ-likeness in us, and our suffering shows the glory of Christ to the world. That when His glory shall be revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And you know what? That doesn't mean the trial is over. That just means we're experiencing joy because the world is seeing Jesus in us, through us. And so our attitude should never be, God, make this stop. Our attitude should, and I'm not saying it's wrong to pray that, but our the the our attitude shouldn't be relief. Our, our spirit and our purpose ought to be showing Christ. And when we do that, that ought to be the greatest joy you and I ever have. Showing Christ. People have all kinds of questions. Where was God? Why didn't God stop it? Why? Why did it even happen to begin with? Why is there suffering in the world? What do we do now? Folks, there are lots of ways we can answer every one of those individual questions, but let me give you an answer to all of them. And the answer is this. He is God. And that's enough. He's God. So we can relax. We can rest. We can rejoice. We can represent Him. We can help bring repentance. He is God. He loves us. He's always good. He'll never do you wrong. And He only wants the best for your life. Let's bow our heads for prayer, please. Every head bowed, every eye closed.